or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. So today we will have a short meeting after service. Um, If you have already signed up for this ministry, please join us. We're going to try to uh, determine when people are available for the feedings. If you have not signed up but would like to know more, please join us as well. Thank you. In the high school room, Andy? Yep, high school room. After service, there'll be a short uh, Mercy House meeting to kind of get, as Andy said, uh, things squared away. So we can start moving forward on that. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1. And again, if you arrived here today without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along, and there should be one in front of you. Somebody's already raising their hands. If there's not one in front of you, raise your hands, and the ushers will bring one to you. Like, have you heard this before? <laughs> Second Peter chapter 1, we'll be starting at verse 1. <clears throat> Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Father, we just thank you that we have escaped that, and what's joined together with that is judgment. But God, you have given us grace. And so, Father, as we have been set apart from the judgment of the world, I pray, Father, that we would rejoice in your word one more time. But God, we would add to our faith, not for salvation, but because of salvation, Lord, that we would be a people well-pleasing to you. In order to achieve that purpose, God, I pray this morning that you would teach us and instruct us to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. The second letter of Peter actually follows very closely to the first, and really it's a good continuation. As we get into really any epistle, there's three main things that we need to consider. We need to consider who the author is and some of his background and the things going on, who his audience is and what's going on in specific in the epistles would be at the churches at the time, and what the agenda is, what's the thoughts that are, he's trying to convey. Well, we know the author of both First and Second Peter is the Apostle Peter. He is tending and feeding the sheep of God as Jesus had commanded him to do so. The audience is the churches in Asia Minor, but as the word of God is breathed by the, or through the mouth of God, it's to the church that is at Ontario today. And then the agenda, to prepare the church for coming hardships that we all need to endure, that we would be well prepared as opposition enters into all that God has called us to do. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of a reminder. And so Peter is going to specifically the theme, maybe even more specifically of chapter 1, but our responsibility to properly respond to good biblical doctrine. When good biblical doctrine is presented, we in turn have a responsibility to digest this, to bring it into our life, to bring it into our life situations, and then to act upon it, to do these things. Remember when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, we see in John chapter 13, he says, blessed are you if you do these things. Not if you hear about them, not if you study them, not if you observe them, but if you do them. And then his second purpose, which we'll see through the remainder of the epistle, is to be aware of improper biblical teaching. Improper biblical teaching runs rampant today. 
even some good organizations, some good denominations, some good movements have kind of gone rogue in the scriptures and in the truthfulness of the scriptures in which the scriptures are presented. We are to stay true to the accurate teaching of the word of God that has been given to us and we need to embrace it. Why? Because it was given once and for all. It doesn't change. You'll notice we don't do things with other churches. Even for the most part with even other Calvary chapels from here to there. Obviously my mother church at Calvary Chapel Chino Valley. But whoever it is that you lock arms with, you'll be associated with. And since we have no control over what is being preached from other pulpits, we want to stay true to the Word of God. I want you to know that when you come into this place, that you are going to the best of my ability, my limited ability, we're all limited, but through the power of the Spirit, that you're going to get God's Word. And God's Word will be made applicable to your lives and our, our situations and the world's situations to a degree. We have to remain faithful in this because, as Paul said, some have veered off and suffered shipwreck. They've become a mess. And so again, first we have the author, verse 1, the first part, Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice the redundancy in his name. This isn't his first and last name. It's actually two names that he has, these two first names, Simon Peter. Simon is his name before Christ. Peter is his name from Christ. Peter means pebble, if you will. Jesus proclaimed himself to be the rock, and you're a chip off the rock. You're a pebble. You're just one in the midst of so many as far as Simon. Well, that's how he used to be, his name before Christ and his name from Christ. And sometimes, Peter, he's such a Simon. He goes back. We don't see this in the epistles, but definitely in the gospels. He goes back to who he used to be and leaning upon his previous understanding. But here we see him as a Peter, as he's standing strong, understanding that he's come from his relationship, all that's come from his relationship with Jesus Christ, and it's that which he has to deliver. And so Peter struggles with what we all struggle with. We all struggle with with who we were before Christ and those influences that are still there. But also, not that we struggle with this, but we struggle to, to embrace it, who we have been made new in Christ. And so Peter struggled with putting off the old man at times and putting on the new, time, the new man at times. It's this conflict that he is about to address something that he has struggled with from the beginning in Matthew chapter 16. We're not going to turn there. But Jesus was asking him, hey, who do men say that I am? Because it's of the utmost importance that we know who Jesus Christ is. That's who our faith is built upon. Who do men say that we are? Well, he gave a variety, or the apostles gave a variety of answers. Then Jesus, as, as if he got in their face, who do you say that I am? Every person in this room will need to answer that question. Who do you say that I am? Not me, but who do you say that, that Jesus is? And Peter had a good response. He, he, he said that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Kind of a twofold answer. We looked at this at the convalescent home yesterday. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one whom the Old Testament scriptures have pointed at. And now he's here. And in case you didn't know, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. It means anointed one. And so you're the one that the scriptures have been pointing to. And now you are here before us. But the Jews misconstrued who the Messiah or the Christ was to be. They thought he was going to establish a worldly kingdom. They thought that their kingdom would be restored back to the glory days of King David. But no, he's the son of God, but he's not just a man. I'm sorry, he's Messiah, not just a man. He is the son of God. And this is a heavenly kingdom, a divine kingdom that is going to last for all eternity. And Peter, Peter did well. And then just even moments later, when Jesus spoke of his crucifixion, because that's the only way all of this was going to happen, he said, not so, Lord. Do you see the conflict even in that statement? Not so, Lord. I mean, do you tell your boss at work, not so? I mean, if I told my father, not so, (laughs) 
I shudder to think what would happen. I still have nightmares about the belt. But not so, Lord. Peter, he, he, he was contrary to God's plan for salvation at that point. And what did Jesus' response? How did Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. He says, you're more of the devil here. Now, you did well here as the Father revealed the riches of heaven to you, but then two minutes later, you were a Peter for a while, and now you're back to being a Simon. And we can, again, do the same thing in our lives. We can have these times when it just seems like the glory of God is shining upon us, and we see the truth, and we do the truth. And other times when we have, well... There is no glory. The darkness, I guess I should say, of the world is upon us as we're interpreting our Christian lives or interpreting life according to those ways. And so this conflict is what we saw last week because you can look at Peter and you can see these, these we, again, we looked at it in detail. I'll go through it real quick. But you see these little conflicts. You see the lessons that he heard and the lessons that he learned, but you just see how Peter was constantly struggling with these things. In verse 1 of chapter 5 of First Peter, he says he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Well, he's referring to the Garden of Gethsemane, but what did he do in the Garden of Gethsemane we saw? He slept through it. Peter, what do you mean a witness of the sufferings of Christ? You were snoozing through the whole thing. How many times have you dozed off in service? I've done it, and I'm up here teaching. I was a partaker of the glory. I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah, but you misinterpreted it, Peter. You were wanting to build tabernacles on this mountain and Christ is worldwide in the hearts and souls of men. He's not on top of a mountain somewhere. And verse 3, going back to 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, Nor is being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Peter, you had this one difficult guy come in and you cut his ear off. That's why they don't give pastors swords because you're just not supposed to do stuff like that. Jesus had to glue it back on. In, in verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In John chapter 13, verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Where's your submission, Peter? We're looking at this past history, and it's not, it's not living up. In verse 7, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Well, remember, Peter, that time that John chapter 21, when you walked away and went back to fishing and you were casting your cares just into the deep apart from Christ. Verse 8, be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan had asked asked for you and said he wanted to sift you by wheat. But Jesus said he would pray for you, but nonetheless, you still denied Christ those three times and so on and so forth. And so you can see how Simon, Simon was, well, his Simon would constantly pop up in his life. But how was it overcome by the Peter in him? It was all, as we saw last week, again, by the grace of God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 through 11, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, after you have failed, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Excuse me. There's a sneeze in there, I think. No, maybe not. It's all by the grace of God. And the beauty in all of this is, and it's what we see from cover to cover in the Bible, common people called by God. Just as you struggle, the people who were called by God in the scriptures, they struggled as well. Abraham, as soon as he came into this promised land, this land that God had promised him and to provide for him, he bailed on it and he went into Egypt because things got a little bit hard. And so, again, we should be able to relate to these people. But the one unifying factor across the board is simply the grace of God. The unmerited, you don't deserve it, but the unmerited favor of God for imperfect people who were called to glorify the living God. So he also refers to himself here as a bondservant, one who willfully makes himself a servant of the family. Now, to the Jewish mind, they would understand perfectly what this means. In the book of Exodus 21, verses 1 through 6, again, we're not going to turn there, but 
when the Lord was given instruction how this community was to conduct themselves, there was an opportunity. If a man was a slave and he came to the end of his service or somebody redeemed him, regardless, he was a faithful slave in this house and he was able to be released, he had a decision to make. Did he want to stay? Was he treated really good? Did he love this family and care for it? Well, then he could become a bond servant. A bond servant is somebody who willfully gives himself to another for the purpose of service. And if he made that decision and if the master agreed with it, they would go and they would take his earlobe and put it against the door jam of a door and they would take an owl or a sharp metal object and they would pierce his ear. And this person would be, it's where they get the term earmarked. He would be earmarked for that family. He would willfully give of himself for his service for that family. We are bond servants. When we say we're bond servants of Jesus Christ, to be a bond servant of Jesus Christ is to understand and is to love the master and it's to willfully give of yourself for his service. And because of that, you have been earmarked by the presence of the Holy Spirit as his, as his possession. He also refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who willfully obeys the words of his master. The words of his master, well, there's many, but in Matthew 28:19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's exactly what Peter is doing in the writing of these epistles and the ministry that we see him doing in the scriptures. Matter of fact, we see the gospel going through the Gentiles for one of the first times through the apostle Peter. And so Peter, in all of his imperfections, is moving forward. And that's the bottom line. He's moving forward in what God has called him to do, who God has called him to be. Last night, my wife and I, we watched the... Uh, the movie, uh, The Titans, Return of the, no, the, the, Remember the Titans, yeah. You know, is that with Denzel Washington? Not really a Christian movie, but it's an inspirational movie, and you can draw parallels to the scriptures. Um, but really what it did for me is it brought me back to my football days in high school. And, you know, just to hear this coach, it just reminded me of the coaches that I would play under and whatnot. And and one of the things that he said is one of the things that the coaches would constantly be harping on. During the spring training, spring training wasn't so difficult. It was more about learning plays and whatnot. But then you got into summer conditioning, and that was hard. They used to run us out to the Bray of Foothills, and we would run sprints up into the uh, up hills and down and all of this stuff. And they tried to kill you out there, but they didn't succeed. But, and, and then as it got into the football season, but one of the worst things that you could do was to be a quitter. Anybody that left the team was just completely forsaken. Well, that guy is a quitter, and that you would never quit. And, and it wasn't just so much that you wouldn't quit playing football, but you wouldn't give up on the team. And I kind of remembered that concept as th this coach was talking about that. Because a lot of times, part of the thing that keeps you going is, is that you're part of a team and you have to fulfill your responsibility. And that's the good thing about Peter. He tried, but the Lord got him back and he didn't quit. Matter of fact, he continued steadfastly and faithfully all the way through to his execution because he understood the dynamic of his faith and the reality of who Christ is that he's willing to give of his life. And, and we can say that, and we can say that as a blanket statement. He wasn't just willing to give up of his life, and this is important. He was willing to give up every moment of his life. We'll say, I give up my life to you. In reality, that's this moment and the moment that I die, but everything else in between is mine. No, everything else in between is to be the Lord. Matter of fact, that's going to verify at that moment that you had given your life to the Lord, and it's also going to be a confidence at the end that you have given your life to the Lord. God, God wants it all. And there's no such thing in actuality in Christianity of a person who quits. Yeah, there's going to come time when our faith is tested. There's going to come time when maybe we even walk away. But it's he who endures to the end. He who digs in and keeps moving forward all the way to the end. And some of the best testimonies that I have heard in the body of Christ is they're still there and they're still serving.
It doesn't matter if you've been doing the same thing for 20 years. There's a guy that, when I was the children's minister over at Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, there was this one man, I believe he taught uh, fourth graders. And uh, I talked to him not all too long ago, and 20-some years later, he's still teaching fourth graders. Why? Because he just feels that he's called to teach fourth graders. And there's a lot to be said of somebody like that. Peter... Peter continued to push forward, didn't quit all the way through to his day of his execution. The audience, the second part of verse 1, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I was kind of considering that. Precious faith. Really? Does a fisherman say precious? I was in construction... And somebody said, well, how does this look? I never said, well, that looks really precious. I mean, it's just not kind of a a term a, a man uses, especially a man such as a fisherman. But you have to understand the meaning behind the word. When he says precious, this is something that is beyond price in that there is nothing else like it. To those who have obtained like precious faith, something beyond price and nothing like it. That's kind of how we should feel about our family. Those who have gotten sick understand the value of health. It's precious. And I pray that's how you feel about your church as well, that there's nothing like it. Something, if taken, that cannot be replaced in your life. Do you hold your faith, your relationship with Jesus Christ, as being something that is precious, that is irreplaceable? Because unfortunately, the only thing that you, or fortunately, I guess, the only thing that you have to replace your relationship with Jesus Christ is that which at some point is going to be dissolved, is going to be burnt, or going to be destroyed. And if even if it's yourself, one day is going to be the day that you die. But as far as my relationship with Jesus Christ, it is permanent, and it is that which is forever. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, least anyone should boast. Again, what was it that caused our faith to be reality in our life? We, we sang about it in that last song. I'll never know how much it cost to see um, something. You, you upon the cross? I don't remember. Yeah, well, you guys know better than I do. I'm not good at song lyrics. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sins upon the cross. Okay, good. But it's so true. It's so true. What did my, my, the ability to exercise faith? It cost the life of God. God humbled himself and allowed him to be abused by mankind. Jesus took sins of the world upon himself and he was punished by the Father so that you could enter into the family of God. This faith that is common to the apostles and all who have gone before or after, Jew or Gentile, to anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord. It's the foundation of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's by faith. Faith is the only way that I could possibly please him. Look down at verse 5, because what he's going to expand upon is what we would call discipleship. What's the foundation of discipleship? But also for this very reason, give all diligence to add to your faith. And he goes on with a list that we'll be looking at next week. But that is the foundation of Christianity or of a Christian's life is their faith in Jesus Christ. Because if you do not have faith in Jesus Christ, you have nothing to build upon. Now, since there are so many things that you can have faith in, Peter makes it very clear and who it is that we are to build this great work on. Look how, well, three times in the epistle here, Second Peter, he refers to Jesus Christ. He refers to him in three different ways. In verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 11, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then in Second Peter, chapter 2, verse 20, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So our God and Savior. Now, he's not talking about two different persons here. He's not saying our God, our God 
and Savior. He's talking about our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Both of those are descriptions of who Jesus Christ is. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is he the Lord of your life? Because Lord and Savior go hand in hand. And if not, that doesn't release you of culpability because in 2 Peter 2.20, he refers to him as the Lord and Savior. Just because you don't receive him as who, from or as who he is doesn't deny the fact of who he is. He's still Lord and Savior. You're not saved if you have not come to him by faith, but he still is the Savior. He's the Savior of all of mankind for those who call upon his name will be saved, but those who don't do not, does not render the fact that he is not Savior. Now, they won't be saved. They will be condemned. Don't get me wrong on that. But he is still, it doesn't change who he is. He is still Lord and Savior. So, is Jesus Christ God? We've looked at this before when we studied Hebrews, Titus, and Romans. We went through this. Some of you probably have come here since then. I have in my Bible these references written in. And so if I have an opportunity to share with somebody who's asking me about the deity of Christ, I'm able to tell them clearly and emphatically that Jesus Christ is God. So I have here in um, chapter 1, verse 1, where it says God and Savior Jesus Christ. And next to that I have written Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But to the Son, he says, this is quoting God, this is quoting the Father. To the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, speaking of Messiah. This is the Father calling the Son God. And then in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, I also have written next to that is Romans chapter 9, verse 5. Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. The Bible is very clear on this. You cannot deny the deity of Christ because we're told, we're told many places, but these are just so pointed. They're, they're just so emphatic. And then in Romans chapter 9, verse 5, I have written next to that, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not looking for two persons, a God and a Savior. This is both descriptions, once again, of Jesus Christ. He is God and he is Savior. There's no denying the fact. Why? Because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, everybody. But there was only, well, speaking of all humanity, but there was one who had come, fully man, but fully God, yet without sin. And it's he who is the one who is only worthy to pay the price for the sins of all humanity. He can pay the price for the sins of all humanity because he himself never sinned. He was without sin. So it's essential to know and to understand that Jesus Christ is God. And so Peter is starting this epistle out with that knowledge. And really what he is writing is going to be based upon that knowledge. Is he your Lord? Well, Thomas looked upon him and proclaimed him to be my Lord and my God. But regardless, if he is or he isn't, if he is your Savior, if he isn't, if he is your Lord, or if he isn't, if you have not made him that, he is still God, Lord, and Savior. Now that he has the faith issue settled, Peter moves on to the next step. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The biggest problem in the church today is the majority of people stop here spending the rest of their lives waiting to die and to go to heaven. They don't move forward in their Christian faith. They don't act upon their Christian faith, and they don't move in their Christian faith. They believe that God, well, God's under contract here. He's verbally committed that once I'm saved, I'm saved, and I'm going to heaven. These are Simons who never really become Peters. And so in verse 1, we have the faith issue. And then in verses 3 and 4, we're going to have God who enables. And then verses 5 through 7 is the necessary response that we are to have to who God has called us to be and what God desires of us. And that brings us to the agenda, the agenda that Peter is presenting. Because again, it's important there is... 
there's going to be tribulation entering into these churches in Asia Minor that they can't even imagine. And Peter is wanting them to keep their nose, if you will, to the grindstone, to continue to press on, even in the midst of this opposition. Why? Because people are dying. People are dying. And their faith, the weak are going to have their faith tested, and the unbeliever is not going to have a clue what's going on, and he's going to fall into despair. There's prime opportunity. As we see our world situation going upside down, are we supposed to stop it? No, that's a greater opportunity to be preaching the gospel because it's during these times that the gospel goes out stronger than it does during when times are good. Why would we want to lullaby people into hell when these tribulations can be used so that they exercise belief and to bring them into heaven? And so I need to see that these hard times and difficult days as we have these great upheavals and so many things are not making sense in the world, well, that within itself is a proof. The world is spiraling out of control, but it's from God's perspective, everything is falling into place. And it's these things that we need to be expressing to the people who are perishing. Well, they don't want to hear it. Well, God will bring them to the place where they will want to hear it. So notice just... That just to be in faith is not enough. It is enough for salvation, don't get me wrong. But as far as our responsibility, I've got responsibility. Again, not for salvation, but because of salvation, that I would be a productive believer. That I would be productive in my Christian faith. I was teaching person who was teaching at the convalescent had stepped down and so I was teaching at the convalescent home yesterday and I'm, I'm just looking to the people who are who are there and, and I'm just seeing this this rich picture these people every one of them in a wheelchair every one of them had to be wheeled in there and I was just thinking that's exactly how I came to Christ in a wheelchair figuratively but God brought me in God brought me in for the express purpose of hearing the gospel. And it was then that I left that place being a new creation in Christ. And I'm looking at these people and just thinking, God's given them such a great opportunity, and I don't know where their lives are at with them. And I'm looking, like, in the front row, three or four of them are got their chin on their chest. They're snoozing away, thinking that looks a lot like my church. But... In actuality, that is my church, so I don't, don't get me wrong on that. But God's, you know, and there, there's diminished mental capacity and all that. But what difference does it make? God is greater than all of that, and his word is living, and it's powerful, and it penetrates. And God is able to overcome this. Somebody was asking me, my, my father or whoever it was, was in a coma, and I said, preach the gospel anyway. If they don't know Jesus Christ, preach the gospel, because God's able to cut through all this. This is the power of God unto salvation. And again, we need to understand the, the value of this word that we all possess. And so Peter wants the church to inspect the building, as far as church, not physical building, but figurative building here. Check out the foundation. Well, that's what we saw in the first two verses. Next, check what has been built. That's what we'll be seeing in verses 5 through 7. So faith is the good foundation, and as far as works, works determine the quality of the structure. And so there's faith, faith in Jesus Christ. That's the foundation that has been laid how are you going to build upon that foundation? What kind of structure is it going to be? Is it going to be a structure when, the, when the, the, the floods come and the winds come and it falls and great as it fall? Because even though it's got that good foundation, if you build a lousy life, a lousy structure, it still can fall. Or are you going to build something solid in the Lord Jesus Christ that is built upon the Word of God? Because even in the example, it's a little bit different, but in Matthew chapter 7, the winds are going to come. And the flood's going to beat against the house. These are realities in all of our lives. Are you going to be prepared when those things happen? Before those, you become a builder that is able to build a structure. And again, it's these things that we need to be built up in the word of God. Verses 3 and 4. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue virtue is his divine character (coughs) 
by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, that you may be partakers of the divine nature and having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Excuse me. Consider this now again. By his divine power, he has given us all things. You have been given all things that you need to live a life that is well-pleasing to God. How? By the power of God. I mean, the divine power of God who spoke everything that we see into existence. You possess that same power. Not that you're able to use it at your discretion, but for God's purposes. And so when we were saved, we were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and dwelt inside of us. This is not the power of God. This is God who empowers us, who enables us to exercise his power. As his divine power has given to us all things. That means everything. There's nothing that I have that you don't have, spiritually speaking, and there's nothing you have that I don't have. Yes, we've all been gifted differently, but still, we have everything that is necessary to live a holy Christian life. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, God-likeness, when you see that word godliness, God-likeness, through the knowledge of him, That's why we study the Word of God, because that's how you come to know God, who called us by glory and virtue. He called us according to his glory, that we would be reflecting glory, the glory of God to this dying world, that the glory of God would be seen in me and not so much Mike or the failures of Mike or Peter and the failures of Peter, but we would see the glory. Wow, look what Peter used to be, but man, look who he is now. And even on the day of his his execution, look at the confidence that this man has and the promises that have been given to him by his God. And it would just be, wow, there's something different about that guy. Who called us by glory and virtue. Again, the excellence of character. Again, in this particular case, he's called us according to his glory and because of his divine nature the excellence of his character, because he is our God, because he had created me, he had reason and purpose for creating me. And because he has saved me, he's got reason and purposes for saving me. What's God's plan for your life? What does God desire to do in you, but then through you? And we all have the opportunity to see that come to pass or to hinder the movement of the Holy Spirit through our lives. Verse 4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. There's that word once again, precious. These promises that are beyond value. These promises that are irreplaceable by anything else. Understand the value of God's word. Now keep this in mind. As he speaks to you, as he makes it personal to you, I mean, don't, don't just reject it. If God's speaking to you and, and he's convicting you and you don't want to hear it and you just kind of put up that shield again, well, then God's purposes and plans are never going to be achieved in your life because, see, the hard things are usually the first things. You go in and, and you look at a building that you want to build something grand and glorious, but it's a mess. Well, a lot of times you've got to do some demo, and that's what God does in our lives. He goes in there and he takes out fleshes out all of the garbage, all of the things that are unnecessary because he wants to build something better. And so that's what he, how he uses his word to do that. It convicts us of these things and that we would make change in our life and get rid of the garbage or, or at least the, the useless things so that he would bring in the glorious things. With the Jews, a lot of them had to be, a lot of their Jewishness had to be removed. I know my past religious, and when I say Jewishness, I mean a lot of the traditions and whatnot. And I know in my life, a lot of my old religious beliefs had to be done away because they were in conflict with what the Bible said. And it's a process, and God works these things out. But I'll tell you this, God had been working in my life long before my day of salvation because I knew a lot of those practices, religious practices, something's wrong here. Something's up here, and it's not good. So that when God started revealing the truthfulness of these things, I saw the reality of what I needed to do. 
And so one day I took inventory and threw it all out. No, nah, it's a process. It's always a process. Because there were things that were of my mind that I thought were so right and were completely contrary to Christ. It's a process. It's called bringing us to maturity in our Christian lives. By which have been given to us exceedingly and great precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. There's going to come that time. There's going to come that time when the divine nature of Christ is going to be placed upon us or the righteousness of Christ has been, will be placed upon us. Now, God chooses to see us right now just as if we have never sinned. He looks at us as he looks at his son. We are adopted children. Jesus is the natural child, to use this illustration. But there's going to come a time when the righteousness will clothe with the righteousness of Christ, that no longer sin will have an effect. No longer will there be pain. No longer will there be death. There will be no more tears. And we'll have eternity in the presence of our Father. He's given us exceedingly and great precious promises that through these we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lusts. We all have various lusts. Lust does not have to be attached to something sexual. It can be attached to, well, to many things. Whatever we lust after that is apart from God. And this is an unnatural or an ungodly passion for things. And it's that which we needed to escape from. Why do you need to escape from something? Because it's got you in bondage. Taking the things that maybe will give a little bit more light on the illustration. Maybe you didn't deal with these things specifically, but you can see how they, they totally make sense. If you're addicted to drugs, you have a lust for drugs. And you need to escape from that. Something somehow needs to work in your life so that it will release you from that bondage. And Christ can do that. Or if it's alcohol, or if it is sexual lust, or if it's a lust for things and a lust for stuff, or whatever it might be, we need to escape from these things. And now we're not just escaping out into the wilderness to die out there. We're escaping from these things and we're coming into his marvelous light. And just think, consider the things that you escaped from, the things that had a stranglehold on you and eventually was going to bring you to death. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and in sins, and which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, everybody here had a but God, if you're a born-again believer, a but God moment. These things were realities in our lives, but God, because he is the only one who could break you free. He's the only one that, would, that could enable you to escape. There's times when we, you know, how many times we, do you hear that somebody's escaped from prison, and then usually a day or two later, they're back. And how many times have we escaped? We went over the wall only to whatever our lust was is to get, get us back. But as far as Christ, when he has set us free, we're free indeed. Our freedom is permanent, and even more than that, or maybe it's redundant, it's eternal as well. And we thank God for the goodness that he has worked in our lives. And so what Peter is doing, he's building this foundation because there needs to be a result. See, there, for what a divine work that God has done, there needs to be a result from the hearts of men and women that show that that change has come about because that change is going to be truly what goes before you. And so our nature, our nature, well, we once were lost, but now we're found. God has changed our nature. If any man's in Christ, he is a new creation. Nature, nature determines appetite, behavior, environment, and association. When we had a dog, I looked at my dog, and I understand the nature of a dog, his appetite. You keep putting food there, he'll keep eating. His behavior, it was usually reward-based. His environment, he didn't really care all that much, like being in the house, but sometimes he would go rolling bad stuff out in the backyard. His association, well, he liked being part of the pack. That's a dog. 
to church. What is your appetite? Do you hunger and thirst for the world and its poison? Or do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? What is your behavior? Do you conduct your life according to your senses? Or is it governed by the Holy Spirit? Church, what is your environment? Is your life decorated by your past? Or have you filled it with the things of the Lord? And what is your association? Is it with the godless? Or is it with the godly? What is your nature? Well, in sitting here today, are you a born-again believer who sees the things that God has for you in order to just grow even so much a little today because we're here? A born-again believer will do that, or are you just bored again? Bored again? Just somebody else. This is a epistle. It's a letter. You're reading somebody else's mail and doesn't really pertain. You make the choice. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for your word and, Lord, all your word entails. And, Father, Peter is basically challenging us. He's, he's laying down the mantle. And I pray, Father, for everybody here today that considers themselves to be a born-again believer, that, God, we would see the, really, these are, are commands that are given to us even in the, in the New Testament. Not, again, for salvation, but because of salvation. Uh, to whom much has been given, much is expected. And these are realities within the Christian's life today. And so, Father, I pray that we would examine our hearts because we saw previously that judgment is to begin at the house of God. And so, Father, I pray that we would make these judgments or evaluations of our own lives. Are we walking strongly? Are we walking surely with you? That, Father, the things that are spoken of in the word that convict our hearts, I pray that those things would be the things that get our attention and, God, we would work change when that is necessary. And so, Lord, we just thank you for today. I just pray, Father, for those who were bored again here today. I pray, Father, that you would minister to them. I pray, Father, that these truths will be so rich that they become well apparent in their lives as well, that they would see the understanding of who you are, that, Father, they would come to the knowledge of their sinful nature, that, Lord, there would be a repentance and a coming to you. And so, Father, we just thank you that you have given us this day. I pray, Lord, that we would be found faithful in it this day and so many more to come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? We only have about four of them, but we are having a question and answer. I'm going to devote a service to answering the questions. If you have a question that you always wanted to know about, like, for instance, I don't know where Jimmy Hoffa is buried or anything like that. But if you have a biblical question, uh, if you could write it on the bulletin and just put the bulletin in the agape box, you can put your name on it or not put your name on it. doesn't really know. thing about it is if you have a question, somebody else probably has that same question here as well. And again, when I accumulate enough of them, then we'll separate a service for that purpose. Family night or game night is going to be next Saturday night here at 4 o'clock. I encourage you to come. It's just going to be a great time, I believe, of fellowship here. There will be a couple up here for prayer, and tonight we're going to be in Second Chronicles. Um, if you want to know more about, if you were bored again, if you want to know more about a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you want to have any questions for the study that I gave today, I'm in the back. I'm right next to the door, so feel free to ask. God bless you guys. Victory.
God bless you guys. Have a good week.